0: Welcome to Orion with Jessa and Laurel, a podcast where we share knowledge and resources to drive a more conscious form of capitalism. On this episode, we bring back our mentor, David J. Farron, CEO and founder of Tory Project. Per usual, we enjoy connecting with Dave about the latest in stakeholder capitalism and where he wants to go in serving entrepreneurs that genuinely want to operate their businesses with a stakeholder-focused model. Let's see their plans to transform business and change the world. Enjoy.
1: <laughs> hey laurel hey jessa who's our guest today
0: we have dave Farron, our mentor and ceo of tori project back again to take the world by storm thank you so much for joining us
2: glad to be back
0: yay back. and jessa maybe we can remind our listeners how we were connected with dave
1: yes so for those um whose memory has not served them or they don't know yet. Dave was our very first ever podcast guest. So we're having him back as a follow-up and we were introduced to him. It's like just this wonderful confluence of events led us to Dave, but to to keep it somewhat brief, we participated in the first cohort for Tory project right when we were launching a Seller Co. And that was the summer of 2019, so almost two years ago. And Dave has been a mentor and friend and just all around wonderful person to have in our lives and graciously came back to Orion. Thank you.
2: It's very kind of you.
0: You know, uh, Dave was, oh, there's my earring. Dave was the first person that put words and phrases to things that Jess and I were really excited about. We didn't know that they existed and we knew we wanted to do business a particular way, but um, we felt a little constrained or a little awkward, or a little weird. And when we went to lunch with you and you explained the ideas of stakeholder capitalism and business as a force for good, and there's a different way of doing things, it really resonated. So I think the first question is, what is wrong with capitalism today? <laughs>
2: <laughs> it was nothing, there's absolutely nothing wrong with capitalism. Capitalism <laughs> is an amazing institution and it has done incredible good for the world. There's something wrong with the way we're practicing capitalism in the United States today. And it's very much about, about our legislative policy. It's about the way we go about governing our country and managing our approach to capitalism. So in uh, there is a type of capitalism that's very um, kind of the this standard de facto approach to capitalism in the United States is based around Milton Friedman's shareholder primacy model. And basically it says that the only purpose of business is to make money for the shareholders. That's it, that's the, that's the end of the story. And it's all about the efforts of all stakeholders serving the one group called shareholders. And that, is, that has become the norm. It took off in the 70s. It was fully embraced in the 80s. And it really took hold in America in the 90s and beyond. And it's absolutely, it's destroying our planet. It's destroying our society. It's destroying our democracy. It's hijacking our very democracy. And what it's doing is it's driving a tremendous disparity between the haves and the have-nots the concentration of wealth in the United States is worse than it's ever been in the history of our country. And it's not the first time this has happened, (laughs) but we didn't seem to learn from the prior times when this has happened. And uh, so there is that other form of capitalism, the one that I am most fond of, and that's called stakeholder capitalism, where you figure out who is it that is going to be impacted by the operation of your business and you identify your stakeholders, typically it's your employees, your customers, of course your shareholders, but your suppliers and your business partners. It's the the communities you do business in. It's the environment and society at large. When you put a plan together for how your business is gonna serve each and every one of those uh, stakeholders, and you go about building your business with true concern and compassion for all of them, and with a longer-term mind frame, there's nothing wrong with capitalism at all. It works, and it works really, <laughs> really well for everyone.
0: Good. I'm glad that you you made that point, because I concur. Capitalism works. It's just the way we do it is uh, what needs to be altered. And when we think about it, there's all different types of ways to do business. And the, the biggest one that stuck with me was shifting the mindset away from just creating as much profit as I possibly can in the business so that then I can donate um, to philanthropy and, you know, reduce my, my taxes, my taxable income. And that's my philanthropy side. And that's how I do it. And it doesn't really take into consideration the impacts on the environment. And what you mentioned about stakeholders is Change my mindset because the environment gets elevated to the level of a stakeholder when you really want to consider what a true business's role in society is it's to take care of its people to take care of its environment and to take care of its profit all on the same go so what are some of the models of business that implement the stakeholder theory or model of, of doing business these days can you give yeah. some examples
2: yeah, there's there's a couple of really good examples, companies that that, you know, of course, you know, the one that's gotten the most publicity, um, at least until they were bought by Amazon, was Whole Foods Market. But, you know, John Mackey, founder of Whole Foods, was really instrumental in the entire conscious capitalism market. He he wrote the first book on it. And and clearly, they've had a huge impact, but they're not the only ones. Um before Etsy decided to uh, to bail on their commitment, and back when Chad Dickerson was running it, Etsy was very much um focused on being a force for good in the world and you know you take the container store right great organization, and Kip Tyndall, the founder of that, was just a classic stakeholder capitalist doing good for everyone. And, uh, you know, after, I don't know, a couple decades of doing good for the world, they brought in private equity money and then they ended up doing an IPO and then Kip Tindall was retiring. And um, so it's, it's hard to stay the course, but there's a lot of companies out there doing good. I mean, I just saw an announcement today, Costco, believe it or not, I never would have known, but Costco is very stakeholder focused. And just today, They came out and said, the heck with this $15 an hour minimum wage, we're going to $16 an hour, we're raising the bar. And uh, I just love it.
1: Yeah, I was just reading about that too. And they were saying, I wish I would have, and by reading about it, I mean, I read the headline Mm -hmm. and and they said something about, like, this isn't altruistic. And I, you know, my sense was that (laughs) my interpretation about reading, it was like, this is just what you do. Like. This is a living wage and a base wage. And it's, you know, I've been thinking about a lot of I've been thinking about this a lot. And it's interesting because this is so our world we live in. I am in my bubble. I talk to you two. We have this podcast. We talk to these amazing business business owners. And then I'll go to another business event or something. I'll I'll get out of my bubble and I'm like, oh wow, this is still very, very new, very green. And I there was uh, Dan Price, um, he's the CEO of Gravity Payments. I love following him on social media. He's the CEO who cut his salary to seventy thousand, and has that's the minimum salary for people at his company. And people are saying, "Oh, it can't work! It can't work!" And it does work, and it is working. And he posts the the best stuff. And something I saw today, and I shared it on my social media, was that the what was it? The I actually just pulled it up. The taxes paid by the poorest ninety percent combined are $550 billion a year for the lowest 90%. I am in that category. Um, Mm -hmm. And then the taxes of the riches owe, excuse me, the rich owe, but don't pay is $574 billion a year. So basically the same. And then the budget for the IRS enforcement of that is $5 billion. And the police budget is $115 billion. And so it's like, well, CRS versus police, we need to be safe. And it got me thinking a lot about how, as society, it's like we cherish the American dream. And so when we see the wealthy, we think, well, that can be me. So I don't want the rules enforced that way because I want to be that person getting these tax loopholes. I want to be that. And then when you see the police budget, you think, well, of course, there's crime. We got to protect our streets. But it's like, how much crime is being committed as a result of poverty? Are having less than your basic needs versus those who are truly, you know, inherently bad people. And then as you think about it, it's like, okay, well, everyone's okay with this in theory because we're all chasing the American dream or so we think we are. And it's been ingrained in us for so long. Well, well you can have this. You can have this home. You can have the two-car garage, the 2.5 kids, when really that's, that's not how it's working out, as I say, from my studio apartment, single and childless. <laughs>
2: I I love I love that you're talking about the American dream because I'm currently reading a book who stole the American dream. And I recommend it highly. Um, It really it really addresses a lot of the key points. And and, and frankly, what's happened is the American public has had the wool pulled over their eyes. The shift in the way we approach capitalism has nothing to do with the American dream. It has nothing to do with serving ordinary Americans or preserving our democracy or enhancing our society. It doesn't have anything to do with that at all. Lewis Powell, who ultimately became a Supreme Court judge back in the 70s, was very, very powerful and influential. and He was pro-business. And he decided that unions and labor were getting too much power and we needed to get the country back on track. And the way to do that was to empower business, to shift power to business. And he convinced the Business Roundtable and the National Retailers Association and a number of powerful, powerful organizations like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce to start pushing and lobbying Congress to change the laws, to free things up for business. And one by one, we've undone the regulations that were put in place after the great depression, We that stopped banks from doing the kind of things that created the, the 2008 great recession. All of that was a result of regulations that had been put in place because we learned our lesson after what happened in the roaring 20s. We said, we're never gonna do that again. And it worked and, and our society was working better. The gap between the wealthy and the, the most wealthy and the least wealthy was shrinking. Workers' wages were increasing in line with top end wages workers' wages were increasing in line with productivity. It was working until they decided that this isn't good enough for the few, and we need to empower business. We need to loosen up the reins on the financial sector. And what you've seen is with the emergence of globalization coinciding with the deregulation of the financial sector, we're seeing the financialization of our economy to the point where the percentage of profits that the financial sector generated 20 years ago was down in the 20% range. It's up at 46% of all profits earned in the United States are earned in the financial sector. Now, are they creating any value? Are they truly creating value for society? I don't think so. I think they're moving money around and putting a bunch of it in their pocket. But the laws and the rules and the regulations have shifted to support and encourage that. And and with that, we're getting more and more wealth and power on Wall Street, more and more wealth and power in the hands of a few people. And they've managed to convince the Supreme Court to allow them to use that wealth and power in almost unrestricted ways so that they can buy our government. We're now to the point where I think at last count, we had over 10,000 lobbyists. The unbelievable number of (laughs) lobbyists that we have in Washington, an unbelievable amount of money. And oh, by the way, you know, of course, labor is trying to fight back. Labor is trying to get rights. There are people arguing for the kind of things that Tory project believe in. But those forces are being outspent by a factor of over 10 to one by the lobbyists that are representing the interests of big business and Wall Street. And that's why the laws continue to be made the way they are. That's why there's no political mandate to do things like close the the carried interest uh, loophole such that the Wall Street fund managers are paying less in taxes than the people that clean their houses. I mean, it's just shocking that we can allow our democracy to be hijacked the way that it's been hijacked.
0: How did, I mean, have you always felt this way?
2: No, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, when typically, right, it, you know, you, you look at religion and who are the most fervent believers? They're the converts. They're the people that believed one thing and then they found the answer and they become passionate. I spent 35 years, essentially, with my head up my tail, pursuing Milton Friedman's shareholder primacy. I believed that I had a fiduciary duty to maximize profits for the shareholders. And if that meant that I had to lay people off, cut wages, cut benefits, close down plants, kill product lines, I did it. And I did it with great enthusiasm because I thought I was doing the right thing. And boy, oh boy, when I finally woke up and realized that I had done it all wrong and that I was clueless, it wasn't that I ever chose shareholder primacy over stakeholder capitalism. Capitalism. I didn't choose it. I didn't know the difference. They didn't teach it in schools back then. And guess what? For the most part, they're not teaching it in schools today. It's better, but it's not as good. I never heard of it. I graduated from college in 1978. I started my first business in 1978. A few years later, I raised my first venture capital up in Silicon Valley on Sand Hill Road. And I got a lesson on how to run a business and what the fiduciary duties of a CEO was. I didn't, I I thought I was being told the truth. I was being told perhaps a truth, but there was more than one and I didn't know it. And I operated, you know, head down full speed in the wrong direction. So in 2016, when I finally had my epiphany, (laughs) I realized what a force for, let's say, I I won't say I was not a force for evil, but I wasn't a force for good in the way that I did business. I was a force for the creation of value for the people I thought I was supposed to be creating value for. And I left everybody else behind not knowing it. And in these days, I'm I'm embarrassed, Um, but you can't go back and I don't live with regrets. I'm just, you know, I've said my apologies and I'm going to spend the rest of my life making my amends, trying to make a difference, trying to promote a form of capitalism that will allow us to rebuild our society, heal our planet and reclaim our democracy.
0: Yeah, I you know, the noblest motive is the public good. And as you said, you didn't know, but now you're aware and you're taking conscious action through the Tory project and, and various other means. I mean, you have an alumni network of Tory Tory project graduates that promulgate the message. Spread the good news, if you it. will.
2: Yes, <laughs> I am so proud of our graduates. I look around and of course you and, you and Jess are right at the top of the list of doing good in the world, but you're not alone. There's other Tory Project graduates out there, you know, that are just doing spectacular things, and it really warms my heart, and it just gives me the energy to carry on, and it just fuels me every day.
0: Thank you. And to that end, the Tory Project for us, um, we talk about it all the time. Uh, it was a big. Uh, lesson and awareness, and how to set up a business on the right on the right foot, and we're grateful for that. So, let's say now I've started my business, and I want to attract the right capital. Um, I don't even know what that looks like, or I need help accelerating my business to the next level. Where do I go?
2: <laughs> well, um, I hope that you're going to be able to come to Tory Project. <laughs> but uh, so we, you know, we started off with our boot camp that that you both went through. And and that's been very successful, and I say successful as measured by the impact it's had on the lives of the entrepreneurs that have gone through it, and the feedback that we've gotten from them, and what we see them doing in the world. And you guys are a beautiful example of how business done well can be a positive force for good in the world. And, and so I know that our boot camp is doing the right thing. Most of the people that go through it are first-time founders, and what we're doing is meeting them where they are and helping them get where they want to go. It's a good first step. The What I've found, though, is uh, that if, in order for those businesses that we take through our boot camp to scale, many of them are going to need to access capital, and that's really where the trouble comes in because the capital markets in the United States today are all set up to operate around stakeholders. I'm sorry, shareholder primacy. And so the people controlling the flow of money to management, if you will, they're looking for people who believe that the purpose of business is to make the most amount of money for them. That's how the capital markets work in the United States and And so there isn't a lot of money out there for conscious entrepreneurs who truly want to use their business as a force for good. We're starting to see the shift take place. There's an organization over in London called PRI. They're doing a fabulous job. They're affiliated with the United Nations. And what they're doing is they're working at the top of the pyramid. They're working with the fund managers around the world. And essentially their message to the fund managers is, wake up, you've got to send some of your capital along to the people who are operating their business as a force for good. And and they're doing this with the largest funds in the world and it's having an impact. And so, and in fact, it's called impact investing. We're seeing an emergence of the impact investing sector. When I started in business, there was no such thing as impact investing, right? It's still very small. It's a small percentage of all of it, but it's starting to happen. And there's organizations like impacts and series that are really helping to drive public companies to take ESG more seriously. And, And I really see that At the highest levels, it's starting to happen. We're starting to have discussion. The capital flow is starting to shift. But when you look down at the bottom and you say, what about the people founding companies, that very early stage capital? There is almost no early stage capital out there that is really looking to support entrepreneurs as they launch and scale their businesses. At that early end, it's really, really hard. And so, you know, and so first of all, there's not a lot of money out there for good entrepreneurs practicing stakeholder capitalism, starting a business. I'm talking your first check or your first institutional check. Really hard to come by. Now, if you happen to be a female, if you happen to be black or indigenous or an immigrant or a person of color, wow now you've really got trouble because there's even less money out there for you. And I think that's wrong. And so I'm gonna to try to do something about it. And my colleagues at Tory Project and I are working right now and it's, it's our number one initiative. We are absolutely full speed on it. We're trying to raise a $25 million fund as a proof of concept. We wanna to prove to the financial community that we can invest in underserved entrepreneurs, black, indigenous, immigrant, people of color, female entrepreneurs who are committed to using their business as a force for good. And we want to step in and give them their first capital. And now I've got to convince the people who have the money to give me 25 million so I can prove that we can generate a competitive return on investment. And if we can prove that at a tiny scale, because 25 million is a drop in a bucket, it's not gonna change a thing, except for the few people that actually get it, but it's it's not gonna do a lot, right? What that 25 million will do is if we prove that it works, and if we show the people in the financial community that you can have it all, you can invest, in young underserved entrepreneurs who are gonna use their business as a force for good, you can invest in them and you can make a competitive rate of return. I believe that money will flow to that. And we won't be talking about millions, we'll be talking about billions. And when we finally get to the point where we're talking about trillions, I'll be satisfied.
1: That's amazing. First of all, congratulations on the initiative and best of luck.
2: Yeah, um, I get a check before we have the con- congratulations.
1: <laughs> well, you got to start somewhere, you know. Yes. And I, I, congratulations on taking the steps to do this. And you know, as we we're talking and we record this live, and we actually just had a comment pop up that I just wanted to highlight um, from our friend Mavis. Um, she's been on the podcast. She um, makes handbags, and Mavis by her, and they're made in Mexico. And she's from Mexico, so she's a female from Mexico. And she said that based on her background, ethnicity, she's 0.03% likely to get funded 0.03. And I think if my, my numbers are right, another female we had on here. um, said that only 3% of female owned companies are backed by venture capital or venture capital funding for only
2: 3% of companies. Yeah, I I think it's it's the amount of the amount of venture capital that flows to female-led businesses is under four percent. Females represent 50% of our population, they get less than four percent of the venture capital. Our black community represents roughly 14% of the population, it gets less than one percent of the venture capital. It's just not right. And so for people like Mavis, I know her company, it's amazing. She is doing incredible things. And she's the kind of woman that deserves financial backing and support. And if I had money, she I would be headed making a beeline to her to see if she wanted some of it because that's the kind of company and, and, and it's not charity. I mean, she's going to build a very profitable business and that business is gonna scale. And, uh, and it's just got all the right elements. It's worthy of funding.
1: And when you talk about this and talking about seeking investors who are willing to take, you know, what they may perceive as a risk into investing in this fund and talk about competitive returns. So, you know, I I think about this a lot as far as where we're putting our money into what investments and how much is enough. So what if your fund doesn't put in or doesn't provide the returns? It's a little lower than returns of more of a traditional fund or another investment vehicle. Like, what point is it like, well, what, you know, you're, you're doing so much more with this money here. Like the value isn't in the dollar. It's like the value you're adding back through the environment, the community, the economy, through funding these people who are more of a disadvantage.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, we've thought a lot about that. We've talked to people to, to get feedback on it. And really the, the challenge is that, people tend to have portfolios. And in the portfolios, they have a mixed basket of things. They invest in high-risk things where they demand a high return and low-risk things where they're willing to accept a low return. And in in the impact space, it really covers a spectrum. At, At one end of the impact spectrum, they're really just concerned about the impact. They really aren't thinking about the financial return it's all about social impact that's at one end at the other end of the spectrum it's all about the financial return it's just they're only going to look for a financial return in companies that have a positive impact right so those are the two those are the two ends of the continuum somewhere in between you have people who are going to look for some of the return in the form of a financial return and some in the form of an impact, a social impact. And they're gonna do their own calculus to figure out if the level of return financially plus the level of return in social impact meets their criteria and make their investment decisions. So it would be really easy for us to head towards the end of the continuum that's all about social impact because frankly i've talked to a lot of people and i've done a lot of research and there isn't a fund out there that is going to, that has the kind of impact that our fund would have in terms of social impact it's so so we could go towards that end of the continuum but i don't want to because that's not going to scale right it's you're at the philanthropy end and we all know philanthropy doesn't scale right if i can prove that you can get a return that's like the top end of the financial return, that's like the top end of the spectrum and be doing, uh, making an investment that's good for the world, that can scale. And I believe that when you get to the really big numbers, the money follows return, right? And unfortunately in today's day and age, it follows financial return. Not social impact return. So we're we're really setting the buy bar super high by saying we're going after maximum social impact, and we're not willing to sacrifice financial return. And this is a real test of stakeholder capitalism and the ability of stakeholder capitalists to prove that you know what they wrote in in the Raj Sisodia's book, Firms of Endearment they demonstrated at least with a relatively small data set they demonstrated that companies that don't focus on profit but focus on creating value for all stakeholders actually earn more profit so by not focusing exclusively on profit you make more profit and there's good reasons that i finally now understand as to how it works it's not fairy dust it's not magic it's pure business <laughs> and so, so if we can if we can prove that what he showed with really large companies that were already at scale, if we can show that in the startup sector, in the earliest growth stages, we can identify, invest in, nurture and grow those kind of companies and provide a competitive rate of return, I really believe that it'll be a financial product that others will emulate, which would just make me so happy. You know, I, we're not looking for anything proprietary. I hope everybody in the world would copy our model and we'd yeah. see lots of money going there.
0: What are some of the specifics that you're looking for that you would go, okay, this is not a business with a social impact. This is a business with an environmental impact. Like practically speaking, you know, that's not greenwashing. That's not just corporate social responsibility. It's not philanthropy. What what give some examples of what it would what those practical reasons are.
2: You know, I mean. it can some people think that in order to be a stakeholder capitalist and in practice stakeholder capitalism, you have to have some do good sort of product, right? You've got to have the next detergent that has no chemicals in it or something like that. And and those things are important. I'm I'm really happy that we have companies that are providing goods, and services that have a direct positive social impact. Those are wonderful, right? But that's a small percentage of businesses in the world. There's an awful lot of businesses that the product just doesn't have a direct positive social impact. I come out of the semiconductor industry, right? Building semiconductor chips does not have a direct positive social impact, right? It's how you run that company that creates the indirect positive social impact. If I run that company with an eye towards hiring disabled people wherever I can, paying a a living wage rather than a minimum wage in all cases, doing an extra good job of cleaning up my environmental effluent and going beyond what's required by law to make sure that I'm not polluting the rivers, right? I'm having a huge positive impact not about my product. It's about the way that I manage my business. So our fund will look at all companies, all products, all services, right? It doesn't have to be heartstrings on the part and the product and service. It's all about the way they're going to go about the management and operation of the enterprise.
1: Dave, clap, 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 clap. I don't know if this is going to sound right. Every, that is something I knew, but I don't think and if I've heard it said, I forgot. But it's I, it's so important. Any any business can be a stakeholder focused business. Any business can be stakeholder capitalist. And I think that so many people who start them, um, own them, work at them, think that it has to be this you know super altruistic. Like oh, we're cleaning trash up off the beach, or we only use a hundred percent sustainable materials, which is all good. You should definitely do that. But th- this is about Laurel and I. I think in our day-to-day, come across people with often. And it's like, no, like you don't need to change your entire service offering, your entire product line, but start to think about this. And that's what we're really noticing is it, it all starts with awareness. Have awareness of your processes, your people, your impact on the community, your environment. And once you're aware, then you can make some pretty easy changes. You might not reverse climate change impacts day one, but you can start to be not part of the problem. Right. Ambitious. We're ambitious here. Maybe you know, Q, Q, we'll wait till Q2 to address that. But I just I think it's like such an important thing for anyone listening is that you anyone can be a stakeholder focused business. Just yeah. start to become aware and make little changes, make little suggestions. If even if you're an employee of a company, look around and I think too, when it comes to the environment, something we talk about a lot is Usually, the sustainable the sustainable option is the low cost option, and so making these decisions, like you were saying earlier, like this impacts your profit. So anyway, I just wanted to like
0: yeah, exactly no
1: um, thank you so much for saying that, and I'm so 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 happy that you know you're saying like this is something that your fund is going to look at and to be able to provide financial options for for people just coming from this mindset
2: right and and you know, what I find is people the people that <laughs> gravitate to me and gravitate to Tory project tend to be ones that have they're looking to launch a business that has a direct social imp- impact. So they think, okay, so we're a fit for Tory project, right? I'm trying to tell people, I don't care if you make coffins or I'll operate a a mortuary, right you you can operate under stakeholder capitalism, and you can be a force for good in the world. It doesn't matter what your product is. It doesn't matter what your service is. It's all about how you go about operating that business. So, Now, this is a big shout out to the underserved entrepreneur community. It doesn't matter what you're doing. It matters how you're doing it. Do it the right way and come see me. (laughs)
0: do it the right way and the and the profit will follow go ahead i
2: was just gonna say yeah like i again coming
1: back to tory project you know what you're finding like when you go to toryproject.org and look when you guys have cohorts or other opportunities are coming up down the line and you know just take everything that dave said to heart about this like you you don't need to be this this seemingly on the outside like you know company that looks like a charity. Like like you can make money and that's okay. You can do good with the money you make and you can make the money thoughtfully and have awareness of it. And so anyway, just uh, for anyone out there listening, like go check it out at toryproject.org and don't, don't be, I don't want to say put off, but don't be intimidated maybe behind the social aspect of it. And as you're talking about this, I I had some news that I thought you might be excited to hear is that I went to some workshop a few days ago this week, Thursday already, but there was um, someone presenting on marketing, and this guy is a professor at San Diego State in their MBA program for a marketing class, and has a pretty impressive resume. And he was sharing marketing trends for um, 2021. And the first one he shared was that um, companies need to have a purpose and they need to be transparent. So transparency and trust, and they need to have the purpose and kind of the Simon Sinek model of like the just cause. Like it's, it's not enough. Like we don't care if you're making more money, like that doesn't mean anything. Like I want to know you stand for something and I want to know you've thought about that purpose other than just solely existing to make more money. Right. And- so, and that's coming back to how the profit follows. Like people are demanding that as consumers. So I think that's super exciting. And I think that is just more like the industry's catching up with what the people want and like your your thought process and approach to to the stakeholder model.
2: In in the profits, the, the enhancement in profits in a company that's run in a stakeholder focused way, the profits come from places that you wouldn't expect until you stop and think about it. And then it's like, oh, it's common sense. So just think about as an example, you treat your employees really well. You pay them a living wage rather than a minimum wage. You give them proper benefits. You invest in their education. you help them with childcare. You give them time off to do good things for the community. You give with you know paid two weeks off so that they can go out and support whatever charitable organization they want to for that two-week period. So you treat people like that. You think those people are likely to quit and leave your company? Not likely because other people don't do it. So you're going to retain people. And that means that you don't have to go through the expense of rehiring people. You don't have the risks of a bad hire because you don't have to rehire someone. You don't risk the loss of your internet intellectual property in in your intellectual capital that that person takes out the door with them. You're not spawning new competitors and providing good trained talent for your competitors to use against you you think of all of the benefits of retention that turn around and impact profit right and it's that way throughout it when you treat your suppliers well and you find that your suppliers are now helping you try to get your cost down and they're willing to work with you it drives profit but the profit is a result it's not what you're trying to drive. It's the result of doing the right thing the right way. And, and that's the way I look at it is clearly you have to have an intention to earn profit. You have to have a plan to earn profit, but as you go about the operation, a business, you can make it harder on yourself or easier on yourself. And as you steer towards stakeholder capitalism, and as you create and share value with all of your stakeholders, they will help you in the creation of profit.
0: Yeah, you take care of them, they'll take care of you. And the profit, the profit follows. And to Jess's point earlier, sometimes people can get really overwhelmed with the idea of I want to be a stakeholder focused business or I want to, I want to do ESG the right way. And they go, okay, the right way. That means I must have the low, the least amount of environmental footprint as possible. Well, then that means I can't produce this thing I want to produce because it has it has an impact on the environment you like don't get so serious on it that that you can't see the broader picture the idea here is being thoughtful purposeful and intentional intentional about all the choices you make in your business if you leave something unturned and you don't know the reason why you didn't choose that option you just went with this option because it was the cheapest you didn't really think about anything else you're missing out not only on a whole lot of value but it can come back to bite you when your consumers, your supply chain or anybody else asks you, why did you choose this over this? And your only response is it was the cheaper option. Well, that doesn't make any sense anymore, because oftentimes what I was just talking with my my doctor about this. Sometimes what's convenient to us right now is actually really inconvenient. It's it, it's the idea of invest now in this in the whole decision, invest now in making the right purposeful decision or pay for it later. So if you if you really want to think about costs, do I want to pay for something down the line or do I want to invest and get an ROI down the line?
2: Yeah, exactly. And I think,
1: or sorry not to cut you off, David. Laura, to add to that, I think the perfect example that's COVID, the pandemic. I mean, corners were cut. We didn't have the supplies early on. I mean, you could say a million things, but the number of deaths are staggering, like staggering. If you weren't, even if you weren't impacted, you don't know someone who's impacted, you were impacted by the economic toll it took. And so between the health and the economic, I mean, that to me, was the most visible thing of profiting over short-term decisions with a long-term impact. And here we are a year later, still on lockdown, still can't go to all the places we want to go to. And, you know, for those of us who are lucky, the ones who are unlucky have a lot, you know, health impacts their lost family members. And so I just think like you get you get my point I'm I'm done
2: here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it you know I I agree with you guys and it's it's a willingness to balance things over the longer term. Right? If you get all caught up in trying to optimize every single decision, you're never going to get there. And what you have to be willing to do is look at it and understand that when you have multiple stakeholders there's always a little give and take, right? And I really get so annoyed when I hear people who have a vested interest in saying this, promoting this nonsense, where they say, you can't do stakeholder capitalism, it can't possibly work because management can only serve one master. And I'm thinking, now, wait a minute, you just told me that we got to pay these CEOs $15 million a year, and we got to give them $50 million bonuses to attract the world's brightest people. And you got to pay them that much money, which is not true, but you're telling me that you're spending all this money. And now these Einstein geniuses that you're paying all that money to can't figure out how to serve more than one stakeholder, really? I mean, have you ever managed a family budget? (laughs) Right. I mean, come on. You look at the family leader. Right. The typical family doesn't bring in more money than they need. They bring in less money than they need. And the people managing the family budget kind of have to choose on this paycheck between, you know, daughter's new set of shoes or maybe the son's new book or maybe putting money away for college for the kids or maybe paying a medical bill or maybe it's this check. We got to pay our mortgage. And they're constantly serving all of the stakeholders, their family members, and not with every paycheck, each stakeholder, each family member doesn't get everything they want, right? In one check, maybe Johnny gets more than than Susie. But over time, because the head of the family loves and cares about all of his family members, stakeholders, if Susie got more this time, Johnny's going to get more next time. Right. If this time there was nothing for Johnny or Susie because we're putting money away for their college. Well, then next time that happens and and they're able to figure it out. But these Einstein CEOs making 15 million (laughs) dollars can't figure out how to care about all of their stakeholders, how to make decisions that are balanced and with a longer term view. I'm not buying it.
1: Well, what was it? American Airlines recently was in the news about, you know, I've been I've seeing, and again, this is these, most of my news comes from memes, but it's about these CEOs who are getting these huge bonuses after they've laid off a quarter of 50% of their staff. So these companies are getting the PPP funds out for the government. And this is, you know, the last year. I know it's like build up over time because this is how things are done and how they've always been done. So you get this government assistance, the company lays off, you know, whatever quarter, third, half of their workforce, the CEO gets a bonus. All of a sudden, profits are increased. And I was seeing something that was like, Well, yeah, no wonder the profits increase. You just laid off half the people. Now you get a bonus for this quarter. Like, oh, all right. And then the JC Penney CEO got this huge bonus and they went bankrupt. And it's like all these things are so visible right now because it all happens so fast to so many people with the pandemic. And it's just infuriating. To put it mildly, about these people getting rewarded, they're, they're not thinking long-term. Like, what what did you do? It's like, well, yeah, I can save a company. I can, I can run a billion-dollar business if all I have to do is show up and fire half the people, and all of a sudden, boom, we're profitable. Well, what about the operations? What about the toll that takes on, like, how you can do customer service?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, what You're would you expect? Get- well, I know, but what would you expect in a country where, you know, we let the financial markets – Loose, we cut off all of the regulation that we knew we need. You've got the financial markets speculating and taking bets that they can't cover, just behaving totally inappropriately. They run their companies onto the rocks, but oh they're too big to fail because we took away the regulations to keep them from getting too big to bail. Then when they're too big to fail, we take taxholder money. We bail the organizations out, and so we save the investors in those organizations. We save the employees in those organizations, but all the people who lost their homes, did they get any help? Heck no, right? And then what happens? This, The CEOs, the executives, the salespeople for those companies take this tax holder money and they pay out billions of dollars. I mean, billions of dollars in bonuses to the people that ran these companies on the rocks, cost our tax holders billions of dollars, right? Cost millions of people their homes. Nobody went to jail, right? They, when there's fines, they laugh. The people on Wall Street laugh at the fines. I mean, like literally the biggest fine that went out was the equivalent of about one day's profit. (laughs) So it's like, okay, we'll pay that fine, sure. Right, yeah, yeah, we'll pay a billion and a half dollars. That's okay. Right. Meanwhile, you've got the executives putting hundreds of millions of dollars in their profits, and you got people, hardworking American people, losing their homes. Well this people comes back
1: this comes back to what we started with is like the minimum wage issue. And people companies are saying, Well, we can't afford to pay that. And it's like, we'll raise your prices. And it's like then the consumer's like, Well, now I have to pay more. It's like you are paying for it. You are paying for people living below the poverty line. Like you might not see it as directly as you see, you know, an extra $5 on your bill for a restaurant that you had to go out to eat at, but you are paying for it.
2: Absolutely. I think
0: you that's know, a you huge th- point. Yeah. yeah. And it's a huge, huge point is like the true cost of something is not reflected in the actual price of it. And people either aren't aware, weren't educated about it, or don't care or exhausted or overwhelmed. <laughs> and we're like, this is too much information. And that's where businesses um, businesses are different than NGOs and, and charities and philanthropic organizations for the exact reason that you stated earlier, Dave, and better than government, they scale. So their impact scales. So if you're a business owner, you have incredible power. Business owners and consumers have incredible power to change the way it's done. Set the accurate prices, take care of your people, take care of the environment, profits will follow, it gets reinvested back into the system, and, and it compounds.
2: Absolutely, but we're inundated with sound bites and misinformation that are paid for by the vested interests that are telling us then when when we say something like we ought to regulate our financial sector, we're called communists, we're called socialists, right? All of a sudden it's like, oh my God, democracy can't live with that, right? And they say capitalism, you know, capitalism has lifted a billion people out of poverty. And they're using that as an argument for why we can't have any regulation because capitalism is so great. What they don't tell you is 700 million of those billion people were in India and China, right? And are you telling me that there's no regulation in India and China? I'm sorry, they don't believe in complete free market capitalism. It's regulated, it's controlled, right? There's some, guide, some training wheels on the bike, if you will. But, but we're told that, that you're not American, right? You don't believe in democracy if you're going to take any action to in any way limit the bad behavior. They say the markets will take care of it. Where were the markets in 2008? It didn't take care of it, right? Well, Where were the they, markets? Go ahead. I'm
1: sorry, oh, I feel like you're like on a thing and I've no, interrupted right. the flow, Dave. <laughs> Go dude. ahead. But, um, it's like, so I think that comes back to earlier is the American dream. Like You don't want it to be regulated because you too can have that someday. You too can be at that level. And so if you're going to own your own business or be a millionaire, you don't want to be tax high. So I think it kind of comes back to that side. Well, this is un-American to do this. And you have a shot just like everybody else does. And that is getting further and further and further away. And it was already light years away from you anyway. And I've been thinking about this. This comes back to me. This is a little, I don't know, psychological, I guess. But I was thinking about it this morning because I walked my dog and my dog, she pees on everything. She doesn't have to go to the bathroom, but she's like, well, this is mine now. And I'm like, OK, so my dog, something's ingrained in her where she's like, I need as much as possible. I need as much. And I think about that with money. Like I've watched a Blink Empire on Netflix and these people just have this insane wealth to a point where I'm like, I don't. I don't want that. Don't get me wrong. I'd be happy with it. But I don't want that. At what point is it fulfilling? You know, you look at them, they have the same problems we all have with ourselves like and with our relationships, but they just have a lot more money and a lot nicer things. And I'm like, how much is enough? How much do you need to hoard? How many houses? How many shoes? How many couture dresses? And then I'm like, same thing with this wealth. These, like, Look at um, Jeff Bezos and then his ex-wife, Mackenzie, who donated all this wealth. And it's just like, what? And it's like, is it in us to just hoard into what more and more and more? And I look at my little like scruffy dog. And she's like trying to take over the world with her pee.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, like yes.
2: what's,
1: so, how much is
2: enough? You talk about the American dream, Jessa, right? And, you know, I get it. People, people are willing to be tolerant of the super wealthy because they dream that they that may be them someday, right? And I get that. That's human nature. But if you were to tell somebody making $11 an hour and paying 30% of their income in taxes, that they could trade places with Jeff Bezos, but they were going to have to pay 60% in taxes. You think they'd cut that deal? Right? Come on. Of course. It's no problem, right? It's not the extra tax that takes away the American dream. The American dream is there if we let it be. But if you take a look at the mobility statistics in the United States, our upward mobility index is going down. It's not going up. Right. The American dream is more out of the reach of the average American every year. So we are in the name of the American dream, in the name of democracy, in the name of capitalism, we are tolerating specifically bad behavior that is designed Mm -hmm. to enrich the few and concentrate the power.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, if you really think about it, Americans, we want freedom and we want choice. And when you really think about it, the things that we buy... And the businesses that we invest in and the people that we give our wealth to are keeping us small, keeping us unempowered, keeping us indecisive, and keeping us unwealthy. We're unable to grow and expand. And they grow and expand unchecked. It's not – growth isn't bad in in its own right. It's unchecked growth and disparity that becomes – an ethical problem. And when it comes down to it, I like to phrase it in as when I have a company that I have to go work for because I've got no other option, that is not freedom. When I have to, um, when I have to work to be able to get medical to afford medical coverage, that's not freedom. When I have to, um, you forfeit a job because I have to stay home to breastfeed, that's not freedom. Like like these things, if you just break it down to very basic level, the obvious solutions, the easy solutions that Jessa had said, it's like just think about taking care of people. It doesn't mean you're socialist. It doesn't mean that you don't like democracy, that you're against the government, that you're against business. It doesn't, it doesn't mean any of that. What it means is that like you're consciously thinking of human beings. As value inherently, not as a means to an end.
2: Yeah, well, you know, the hardcore on one side argues you've got to have free market, free market, free market. Everything is free market, and if you're going to interfere with free market capitalism, then you know that's socialism. It's communism. It's terrible. Well, the
0: commodities on the free market aren't. The prices aren't correct. They're not well, accurate. There's too many negative. Externalities.
2: There is no free market, Laurel. There never has been. There never will be. Right. I mean, has there ever been a time when there's been no duties, no tariffs, yeah, right? So many duties. How about no subsidiaries, right, for the big agri-companies? How about no subsidiaries for the gas and oil companies, right? Of course, the markets are regulated, right? It's just we have we have regulations that can either be more serving the few or more serving the many, but they're regulations in any case. So when we start saying, gosh, we need to put some regulations on the banking sector and everybody freaks out saying free markets, free markets. Where's the free markets? Are we getting rid of all regulation? Are we getting rid of all subsidies? Are we getting rid of all of the laws, all of the rules of the road? If so, okay. how long would our society last? So the fact is that all markets require some level of regulation. you got to have rules of the road. There's got to be limits. You've got to have some way of policing the just the kind of greed and corruption that is currently fueling. The destruction of our democracy.
0: Agreed. And business can be that force
2: for good. And it's gonna be. <laughs> so.
0: Well, we're coming up on our time, and so I want to reserve the last bit for your three-point landing, the the three main takeaways. Because we've covered a lot of ground, and we could go on. I'm sure. Uh, what are the three things that you want our audience
2: to walk away with? Number one, I want to make sure everybody understands I'm a capitalist. I am a hardcore capitalist and I believe in democracy. And I'm here to tell you that capitalism, the way we're doing it in America, is not working today. That's my first point. My second one is I firmly believe that stakeholder capitalism is the path forward for our country and creating value for all stakeholders and using business as a force for good will be both profitable and pleasing. And then the third one is that we're not gonna get the change that we wanna see in the way companies are run unless the global investment capital markets demand it and support it. And currently they are not demanding it and they're barely supporting it. And so the global capital markets need to step it up And they need to put their money in companies that are going to drive the kind of change that we want while making them a good return on their investment.
0: And thank you for the conscious action towards that goal. Really, in support of you raising the 25 mil proof of concept for the underserved entrepreneurs fund, please go to toryproject.org to see how you can participate, learn from, Dave is an open book, as you know, as you can tell. (laughs) We're so grateful to have you. Thank you so much for sharing. And of course, we'll have you back again.
2: It's great to see you guys again. Stay healthy and be well.
0: Oh, send it, Jessa. (laughs) Thank you for listening to this episode of the Orion Podcast. If you're looking for a thoughtful gift for yourself or others, Shop ethical jewelry with a story at article22.com. Enjoy 10% off qualifying purchases with promo code ORION10. That's www.article22.com and code ORION10. Enjoy!